sporting news, reviews and previews. This is the Sports Desk. Morning, everyone. You're listening to the Sports Desk here on Sin. You're with Kendra and Luca. It's Wednesday morning. We're going to be discussing all the latest and breaking news yeah, from Australian sport, including AFL, uh, the N- NRL, um, as well as NBA Finals that wrapped up uh, two days ago, uh, netball, some cycling and uh, swimming news, as well as the F1. But we're going to get stuck into. Um, the uh, the AFL this past weekend, Kendra. What a round it was. Oh, yeah, the semifinals. It was quite full on. I'm going to start off with Richmond versus St Kilda and beat the, beat the Saints 80-49. to 49. Now, I don't know about you, Luca, but I honestly thought the Saints would be – would actually give Richmond a run for their money in this game. But I have to say, Richmond were pretty dominant for the first half and maintained the pressure for the whole game. I mean, they did have their key forward, Tom Lynch, back, which definitely changes the dynamic of the team. But I don't know. What did you think about the Saints this week? Yeah, they just were pretty lacklustre. Like a lot of their big trade um, targets over the summer, they're kind of – didn't play up to expectations, uh, especially uh, Ryan. I think he he um yeah he was very under the radar for me. Uh, and yeah, yeah, just going up front, they were just they just missed their chances. Yes, definitely. I mean, from watching Richmond, they were very good in the midfield, and they had like the full forward was very strong. You had Rewalt and Lynch, who definitely do dominate around the goals when they are on. Also, seeing Dusty play in the midfield was really good. Now, I just want to ask from the player that Dustin Martin is, where do you think he should go? Should he play midfield more or full forward more? Ooh, well, that's an interesting question. I think it depends on what the matchup is. In the game, so if he's get if he's not getting the certain possessions and currencies that he needs through the midfield, like uh, gathering up the crumbs, you know, then probably chuck him in the full forward line um, and just send that ball in because he'll just gather it up and I don't know, clear it, clear it away, clear the path, score a bag. But yeah, against St Kilda, it was pretty definite that they should have put him in midfield. Yeah, I think I'm skipping stones here, but I'm just really starting to, as I was watching the game, I'm really starting to try and predict how the Tigers, being a Richmond supporter, are going to go next week. But before we get into that, do you want to bring us the scores from Geelong-Collingwood? Yes, Geelong versus Collingwood. Uh, they Geelong, they batted the Pies 100-32. to um, This is another scoreline that I did not expect either, seeing as though Collingwood came up with the goods against West Coast and such. Uh, competitive fashion and they just look very lackluster very um behind the ball like two or three steps behind the ball especially marking in the defensive end Geelong were just it looked like they had way more players in their own forward 50 at some points um Hawkins Selwood Ablett they had stellar games Ablett with like a couple good assists to goals um Zach Dewey had a great game as well kicking a few goals there just they just shared the ball around pretty much the whole the whole game, um, and yeah, the, the pies 
Kendra, they were just horrible in my opinion. Yeah, I did feel sorry for the Pies. They did look very debilitated when they did lose to the score that they did. But seeing those players, as you said, like Hawkins, Selwood, even Patrick Dangerfield and Ablett, like they played so well together. I think it'll be really good to see what they do for the upcoming games as well because they are such key players and they are, you know, quite a bit, a little bit older and like they're coming to like, you know, older in their careers, but they're still playing so well. So I'm really interested to see how they'll go in the preliminary finals what do you think their chances are against um the brisbane lions on uh, in the gabba oh i mean geelong is a victorian team and brisbane are playing you know close to their home i think i think geelong could do it like the just watching how they played against collingwood i think they could beat brisbane although to be honest I'm very unsure as well because Brisbane did pull it out against Richmond who played so well against St Kilda. So I think it could just go either way. What are your thoughts? After watching the Brisbane-Richmond game in the qualifying final, I found that a lot of the time Brisbane were very strong in the defence. So whenever a high ball was coming in, they just had so many intercept marks and they couldn't get much much going for Richmond. So I think with Geelong's game, uh, running through the middle, kind of diverting the passes, that should disrupt that intercept mark game. They usually play Brisbane. But in saying that, Brisbane, look, they look stronger than last year, for sure. So it'll be, I think Brisbane will just get by on the post, but it's going to be a close one, I reckon. Yeah. So for predictions, we're saying for Port Adelaide versus Richmond, who do you honestly think is going to win? I mean, this is very interesting. I'm a Richmond supporter and you're a Port Adelaide supporter, but who honestly do you think are going to win? Honestly, honestly, I believe I believe Port Adelaide will do it. They they have the team spirit, they've got the camaraderie. They play to their strengths. So whenever some like another team, they like disrupt their rhythm and play to their like groundwork football. Uh, it's going to come down to a lot of the contested possessions and clearances. Um, that's in my opinion, yeah. How about you, Kendra? I'm going to say Port Adelaide as well. I mean, I want the Tigers to win, but I think Port Adelaide will beat them. They are, as you say, playing to their strengths really well this year. They're also at their home ground, and I think that can be very hard for you know a Victorian team coming up to their home ground and beating them, but it has been done before, so I don't know. I really hope that Richmond can pull it together and play as well as they did against the Saints, but they'll definitely have to up the ante if they want to take Port Adelaide down as well because they are such a strong side, as we've seen all year. They've been very consistent on top of the ladder, so I think Port Adelaide are going to win, but fingers crossed the Tigers will bring something to the table and surprise them. Yeah, it'll be I – hope, I hope it's a good game. I don't want, like, a blowout or anything. That'll kind of be boring, but, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I'd love thoughts? to see a good, a good like, cutting-edge game where you've got – it could go either way in the last quarter. That's what I really hope. I want, them, I want to see them really, like, battling it out for this spot because whenever you have one of those blowout games, it just becomes really hard to watch. I mean, if you are losing especially, even if you're winning, I find that – if you're watching just a team take out a game with very little competition, it does. it is hard to watch. I think it's just as simple as that. But I really hope, yeah, that it's a few points between it would be a good game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's hope, let's hope for a good game. Let's hope for a good game. 
Um, let us know your thoughts uh, in the upcoming final series. Uh, we're on Sports Desk Sin on Instagram and Facebook. You can also catch up with past shows on Omni as well at, at, at Sports Desk Sin. Uh, coming up in the rest of the show, we're talking about tennis. Uh, French Open finals also concluded over the weekend. We're discussing that. Uh, there's also going to be a content warning for a story we'll be covering over uh, domestic violence during coronavirus times uh, regarding the footy finals. So stick around. Uh, we'll be right back after a few ad break things. Yeah. Yeah. We're on uh, the sports test this Wednesday morning uh, with Kendra and Luca. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sin. We're always on. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sports Desk on Sin on this Wednesday morning. I'm Kendra and I'm joined with Luca. And now we're going to move on to the French Open, which concluded in the last few days. So French Open, we had 19-year-old 19, 19 world number 54, Igar Swatek, win the French Open 6-4, 6-1 against Sofia Kennan. And this is the first Polish player to ever win a Grand Slam. So, Luca, what did you think of this? This was pretty incredible from the 19-year-old. Yeah, she played an absolutely amazing tournament uh, at the French Open, did Iga Schwatek. She um, she didn't drop a set the whole Grand Slam, and I believe she conceded the fewest games for a, like a first-time winner at a Grand Slam as well. Uh, completely blitzed the competition, including world uh, number one seed at the French Open, Simone Halep. And after I saw that, I thought, yeah, I think she's odds-on favorite now when she took out Halep. Um, but yeah, Sophia Kennan, she didn't look maybe 100% on the court. I don't know. What, what did you think of the match? I just, with Sophia Kennan, I think her, like, hitting the balls back, I just, I don't know. There was just... A lack of like sort of I don't I'm talking from someone who just watches tennis and have never played, but I just didn't think that her coordination was really attacking. Did you think the same? I don't know. I feel like Iguashwatek, she was very good with the attack as well as her defense, and it just seemed like she had a whole lot more of power through her hitting. Yeah, that's for sure. Um I believe I believe Ken like she had a like a strap around her hammy, her hamstring, sorry. Um and she did take a medical timeout in the second set. But, oh, like, as you said, Schwatek was the more offensive player. Um, she covered her defense well as well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the the first set was very close. Um, both players uh, dropping their serve service games towards the end of the set. And it was uh, Schwatek who broke at least three times against Kennan to get to get over the line 6-4. But, yeah, in the second set, it was just all Schwatek. She was more confident. She her her body language even on the court was saying that she was the more positive player as well. And the stats backed that up, I think. Um just unlucky unfortunate for Ken in that she had to not play hundred percent, but still yeah. Yeah. Schwartek's confidence on the court really reminded me of how when Serena Williams is up and playing her best games, it was just very similar. I saw a lot of parallels to that, just that confidence and that drive to really take out the win in like such a, I want to say, aggressive way. Like it was really attacking. And I think, yeah, as you said, Sophia Kennan, she just looked a little bit off. I think, yeah, the strap with the hamstring and taking medical time, I definitely would play on your psyche while you're playing tennis. But, yeah, it was definitely, definitely thought within the first few sets that Schwartek definitely 
gave it a real good shot and had it in the bag, I would say. Both both um both Schwantek and Cannon are like reasonably young. They're in their teens to early twenties. Do you think this could be a new uh rivalry in women's tennis, Kendra? Well, I think it's quite exciting to see these two young girls doing so well at the French Open. Like I think it's a really good thing. I'm hoping that we can see a few new players with with this same sort of rivalry coming up. I mean, it's always exciting when you have the big players like Serena Williams, Simona Halep all playing their best tennis. But I always get excited when there's a couple of young girls who are very competitive coming up and really challenging these top tennis players. So it's going to be really good to see for the future of tennis how these two girls go. Yeah, I'll, I especially am looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, On to the men's side of the draw. And it was Rafael Nadal who won his 13th, that's 13th French Open, defeating Novak Djokovic, 6-love, 6-2, Kendra, the king of clay does it again. Yeah, I knew. I Nadal, I mean, he had to win this. He plays so well on the clay. He just, I don't know what it is. I think it's just the, the I'm going to, well, it's obviously the skill and the coordination, but he like just sort of glides almost on the court. Would you say that or am I just reading too much into it? No, but no. like he just, yeah. he's just the way he glides, like almost, I want to compare it to a video video game almost. I mean, you know, Djokovic is a very, he's played very well this year despite all the other things that have happened outside of tennis. Djokovic has played really, really well. But Nadal, he just hit a new level on this, um, this victory. He really took it out. Yeah, Nadal was uh, immaculate, untouched in the first set. Um, Djokovic couldn't get a handle on his first serve, uh, especially. And Nadal had just all the answers, forehand, backhand, on the net, just dominated the court, uh, left, right and centre. Yeah. On the first one, 6-0, like, this is Djokovic who's, you know, had many times where he's beaten Nadal. He hasn't even scored in the first first set like that when I first saw that I thought yeah like this is bad news for Djokovic like you know not even contending Nadal in the first set you know that it's going to be very hard to I mean it has been done before a number of times but it's very hard to come back from something like that like 6-0 yeah I'm unbelievable uh even the second set was pretty much the same story as well uh, Nadal breaking uh Djokovic to serve Midway through the second set, um, a lot of overhead shots um, and just forehand winners. Like just, oh, Djokovic tried his hardest to put him out wide, and then, as you said, Nadal would glide across the sidelines and just crack a cracking uh, forehand down the line. It was just amazing. Yeah, he's very agile. Like his agility is definitely amazing on the clay. But Djokovic did come back in the last game with the 7-5 you could tell that his back was against the wall and he was trying everything he could to you know maybe edge it out a little bit but Natal was too good and he has equaled Roger Federer's record of 20 Grand Slam victories now we we were predicting this a few episodes back and now it's happened it has um um look it was records are meant to be equal or broken um but this is nice to see. I think both Federer and Nadal deserve to be on uh, a level, let's say, pedestal um, with their caliber of tennis. They've dominated the sport for the last 
two to three decades, let's say, last 15 years. And it's just great to see them both have the same amount of Grand Slam victories. All right, coming up on the show, we will be discussing a story around domestic violence. So this is a content warning for anyone who may be listening that might feel uncomfortable listening to this or choose not to. This is a good time to tune out. Sin, we're young people run the show. You're listening to the Sports Desk here on Sin with Kendra and Luca. Uh, just a quick content warning again for those of you just that are tuning in right now. Um, we're discussing a story involving domestic violence uh, in time of coronavirus. Um, so experts suggest that uh, during footy finals, and there's been a 40% spike in domestic violence callouts. So uh, if you have been experiencing this or been a victim or witnessed uh, domestic violence in your life, um, just here are some numbers you might want to call. Uh, there's one 800 737-732, the Respect National Helpline, um, Lifeline as well, 131-114, as well as uh, the Safe Steps Crisis Line in Victoria, 1-800-015-188. Okay, so this, this story was published on ABC News um, regarding maybe uh, NRL stories that allegations against former players or current players uh, involving domestic violence. Yeah, it is definitely it's definitely a hard thing to read, but honestly, I'm not surprised by it. I think it I think I think with this a lot of um I guess maybe in these sporting clubs, maybe not so much education and investment goes into really trying to educate people on boundaries and what's respectful. I mean, I know some sporting clubs have gone to the effort to try and maybe introduce people to talk to these players and educate them, but obviously not enough's being done since we are seeing a few players be in the media recently over assault and domestic violence. But I think that, yeah, more definitely needs to be done. I think they greater education needs to be invested into these sport clubs. These sport clubs have a lot of money, so they definitely can afford it. But I think they really need to prioritise it. Yeah, one uh, former NRL star, Ian Roberts, um, he is kind of educating people in rugby union, AFL, and other sports um, that to young men and young women as well um, about domestic violence, family violence, um, respectful relationships. Because uh, I think it starts it starts at a young age. Like if you educate and intervene before adolescence, let's say, then you're already gaining that knowledge, you're getting that life experience, and uh, young people can like, better understand what consent is what um how to like behave let's say like not have this toxic masculinity um as well that can be let's say enhanced or amplified in a what do you call it like a sporting arena yeah what i'm really interested in reading this article is that they've said tribalism still exists so for these sporting clubs and there's definitely still a culture it's very much a man's world what do you think of this why do you think this is the case um well i hate to quote like 
Trump. Like, remember when Trump was running for president and he, like, was, like, trying to, like, yeah. dismiss comments about women as, like, a locker room talk or something like that? Yeah. So this idea of the locker room being um, boys' club or um, boys' only and what's said in there doesn't really reflect the outside world. Well, in actual fact, it does because yeah. whatever you bring in, like it's a true form of yourself that you bring into like every aspect of your life. And we got to like young man, man, like just have to better understand that like sometimes actions speak louder than words and we have to lead by example sometimes as well or most of the time really. Yeah. I mean, with the spawning sense, like I'm saying this from, you know, a girl's perspective, like I, you know, tell me if I'm wrong when I say this, but I think with sport and especially like young guys, they're so close as a team, which is really good to see. Like usually guys you play in football, any sporting team, like they're really close on the field and like, you know, really good mates, but maybe sometimes that locker room banter that they think is funny or just a joke becomes more and I feel like as a team sometimes they might maybe I don't know urge each other on a little bit and they might take it a little bit far sometimes would you agree with that yeah I'd say it's um as a person that's played sport before in like a team setting um I've been witness to it um if I've called it out or not acted better or not for lack of a better word but yeah I think it is evident especially in like teenage years where you're supposed to, you're learning how to interact with different people, um, how to be a person in the real world, essentially. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. yeah. I think especially, I think with young, like teenagers and like young kids playing sport, this goes for, you know, anyone who's playing sport. I think the coaches and like, you know, parents of sport and everything really need to play a key role in enforcing just how to behave when you're in this team sort of setting and how you're reacting to, you know, or reacting to other people is really important. It's about just educating about respect at the end of the day, like even at such a young age and it's, you know, respect for everyone. And I think that that, you know, if you can learn respect for people in just like a lower level it carries into other areas of your life so I think yeah in sports settings with young kids there just needs to be education from key role models like coaches and other like parents and officials and stuff on the who are involved in the game yeah I agree with that um especially like when you're playing like grassroots sports right like league league footy or league soccer or whatever on a weekend and let's say a referee happens to be a woman right a lot of a lot of times in my like as a well, as a linesman watching what's happening, the like parents and like coaches whatever, they kind of don't take that official seriously because she's yeah. a woman, and that's a that's a that's a what do you call it like a red flag for younger players because when they see that and they grow up with that thought of oh let's not take her seriously as a referee and not respect her call or whatever, and. It's it um it amplifies as an adult. So when I reached yeah. senior soccer, and we had a, a referee who was a woman, right? She every call was complained about, and it was kind of frustrating for her. And you see it on her face, I'm like, like what are you? What is going on? Like respect the referee, no matter who it is. Yeah, 
that is so such an important thing that I think that's also perhaps the solution to some of this stuff. It also says that in the article is that having more, I guess, female role models who are in these sporting settings like umpires, perhaps in the media, even coaches, bringing some coaches on board um, definitely will help younger kids, especially younger boys, see that, you know, it's normal to have both men and women in sport and I think that um, this will definitely help bring a change in the future to see how these, like, players and athletes relate to each other. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, we've got a long way to go, I think, but, so like, the change needs to come more quickly, let's say. Like, we have to face it up front, be honest with ourselves as a society in the sports world, let's say, um, and kind of de- de- uh, what do you call it? de-escalate the power power structures. And, uh, yeah. All right, so coming up soon, we will be discussing uh, the NBA Finals that just uh, wrapped up over on Monday, I believe it was. Yes. Um, it's Wednesday morning. You're on the Sports Desk here on scene with Kendra and Luca. Don't go anywhere. Do you want to be a radio star? Well, you can. Join Sin and get involved in radio, TV, podcasting and online. Visit syn.org.au forward slash get involved to find out more. You are listening to the Sports Desk on this Wednesday morning on Sin. I'm Kendra and I'm joined by Luca. We're going to go to the NBA Finals, which wrapped up and the Lakers won against Miami Heat 106 to 93. Now, Luca, do you want to take us through the NBA? Yeah, um, it was a it was a cracking game. Um, pretty much a blowout from the first half. Uh, the LA Lakers led by at least thirty five points, and uh, yeah, just another top caliber game from LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Um, LeBron James finished with a another triple double. That's his eleventh triple double in the NBA Finals. Um, it's the, the most by any NBA player ever, um, and it's his 27th in the NBA playoffs, and, which is which puts him second behind Magic Johnson in that stats uh, column as well. But the game is, in itself was pretty much a blowout compared to the Game 5 uh, Miami Heat victory where Jimmy Butler just, yeah, just carried his team back and forth. Jimmy Butler versus LeBron James uh, going down the lane and scoring, but... Compared to this game, it was uh, it was all uh, it was all Lakers, unfortunately for uh, the Miami Heat fans. Let's say, but yeah, I'm asking this from a pretty outside perspective. Why did the Lakers win over Miami? What was it about them that had them had the edge on Miami Heat as a basketball team? So before the NBA suspended its season due to COVID nineteen. Um, Everyone, like all the experts in the U.S., were saying it was either going to be the Los Angeles Clippers or the Los Angeles Lakers who would win the NBA title in the end. It was not going to come from the Eastern Conference where Miami plays. Um, it was just too stacked, and their their rosters were not, let's say, as deep or uh, as consistent as either the Clippers or the Lakers. Now, once the NBA bubble began, Miami Heat, in my opinion, were the best team. They won... Eight out of nine of their remaining regular season games, they were still the fifth seed. They weren't the best team in the East, but they had momentum going with them. 
and they knocked off Giannis Antetokounmpo, who was the league MVP, uh, a part of the, the number one seed Milwaukee Bucks. They reached the finals against Boston, the number two seed, number three seed, perhaps, yes. And uh, in six games against the Boston Celtics, they destroyed them pretty much. And they came to this game massive underdogs. The Lakers were the one seed in the in the West. And yeah, with LeBron James, Anthony Davis, it was a hard, tough, to, hard call to bet or like tip against the Los Angeles Lakers. So Rajan Rondo is the only player to win both Lakers and Celtics. Do you want to talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, so in 2008, uh, Rajan Rondo was part of uh, the Boston Celtics. The 2008 uh, finals victory over Kobe Bryant's Los Angeles Lakers. And uh, he, through various trades and whatsoever, he ended up on the Lakers uh, for this season, partnering Anthony Davis. And both Rondo and Davis had played at the New Orleans Pelicans in 2017-2018, I believe. So to, for them to play again, um, I think they had some team chemistry and knew each other's game. Rondo was pivotal in uh, in the playoffs, especially. He he was like the third man there to like direct traffic and call plays. And on the defensive end, Rondo is like a mastermind. He knows he pretty much knows every single play. He studies the opposition very well, like watching the tape. Um, and yeah, it was a uh, it was intense matchup. Let's say. So how he knows each player very well from watching the tape, how does he adjust his own playing style to this? Like, could you give an example? So yeah. against uh, against Jimmy Butler or Goran Dragic, he would, um, he would play more closely to the three-point line and defend more closely to the ball. Whereas if, um, let's say, Tyler Hero was coming down the lane, He'd, he'd force him to go on his left hand, his uh, less preferred hand. We saw in uh, game three, it was, or game four, where uh, Tyler Hero got the better of him, and everyone thought, oh, this is, this is it. Maybe the Heat will uh, like charge up and kind of challenge the Lakers for the title, like in upcoming games. They were just too good on the defensive end. Um, injuries did plague the Heat as well. I would say that. Um, Bam Adebayo wasn't 100%. They were missing Dragic for games two, three, four, and five. Um, but they just, they weren't uh, they weren't as strong as a team as the Lakers. So who was the finals MVP? Uh, that would be LeBron James. Um, he won his fourth finals MVP award. Um, that beats any other NBA player as well. He's won his... He's, uh, he's been on three different teams and won an NBA title. Um, no other player has done that. Um, and it's his fourth uh, championship as well as an NBA player. Uh, and in his speech to uh, the ESPN reporters at the bubble, he, uh, he demanded respect for Genie Bus, for Rob Palinka, the front office people at the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, he promised them that he would bring respect back to the Lakers nation, um, and he also demanded respect from the fans and haters alike, let's say. So there's a bit of let's, uh, disrespect or um, downplaying of LeBron James's achievements because uh, 
maybe he isn't up to the caliber of Michael Jordan in some people's eyes. But it's two different eras. Um, I don't like to compare eras, especially. You can compare players in the same era, but different eras, it's, it's tough. You're going to always have very differing opinions. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was quite amazing to watch, really. <laughs> A funny thing actually happened. Um, there's this player called J.R. Smith who had previously played with LeBron James in Cleveland. And he was like uh, signed to the Lakers as a last-minute replacement for Avery Bradley. And he played not even one minute, like probably 40 seconds across the whole of the NBA Funks. And he was the first player to actually touch the Larry O'Brien trophy. <laughs> and that, that for me, that was like so J.R. Smith, like – Completely undeserved uh, time and like, what are you doing, dude? Like, come on. <laughs> oh man. Um, but yeah, the uh, credit to Adam Silver, the chairman of the NBA, for setting up the NBA bubble in Orlando at, at uh, Disney Walt Disney Resort in Orlando, Florida. Um, they did a great job, um, especially due to. Like a lot of the social issue, social justice issues that were occurring in the United States of America as well, um, especially the Black Lives Matter movement, that was constant um, foreground. Like a lot of the players wanted to promote uh, Black Lives Matter as well uh, during the during the NBA bubble, um, and it was imperative for them to have their voices heard, to speak out, and to highlight at a grand scale what um, what. These people need, like, what the people need to do to change um, the issues and to change the the conversation in America, really. So people had like justice for Breonna Taylor, just for George Floyd on their jerseys, and uh, votes. Like a lot of like every player had like a special message on their jersey. Um, mm. Especially the WNBA also did that as well. They they had Breonna Taylor's name on every player's jersey on the like the, what do you call it, the floorboards of the court, the basketball court, her name was there. And if if that hadn't occurred, I don't think the NBA bubble would have eventuated, let's say. Yeah. All right, so uh, coming up after a short uh, break, let's say, um, we'll be discussing uh, some swimming and cycling news as well as the Formula 1 over the weekend. So keep it on scene. You're on uh, Get Serial this Wednesday morning with Kendra and Luca. You're listening to Sin. You are listening to the Sports Desk on Sin. I'm Kendra and I'm joined by Luca. We've been talking all things AFL, NBA, the French Open, and now we're going to move on to some swimming and some cycling. So for swimming, pools in Victoria have began to opening open up, allowing swimmers to get back in the pool training, which has been a really good thing for Victorian swimmers as other states are in have less restrictions than Victoria and have been able to train. But unfortunately, Victorian swimmers haven't been able to have the same training. However, the pools have opened and they can hop in the pool, but actual club swimming hasn't gone back yet. So they're still at a bit of a disadvantage, but it is a good thing to see some of these swimmers get back in and train towards the goal of next year. Yeah, you hate to see um, like your own sport put on hold and the rest of the country is allowed to do that. But uh, yeah, I think it's for the best. 
yeah, it is really hard. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see how they do. Um, I mean, Swimming Australia have said that the Nationals will go ahead as planned in April, but it will be really interesting to see how they accommodate for these swimmers who haven't had the same training as other states. There is a question of fairness, but I guess there's not much they can really do. It's a sort of a fine line between keeping the sport going and being fair, so to speak. I think it just comes down to luck of which state you're in. Yeah, luck, luck of the draw at this stage, but yeah. There'll be a hub, right, in the Queensland? A hub? Like a like a swimming hub or something? Like uh for the championships? Yeah, I'm pretty sure a few probably a lot of the top end Victorian swimmers are probably training in a hub at the moment. There's not a lot around information around whether they are actually in the hub right now. But um yeah, I'm thinking that um a few of the swimmers in these other states will travel to a hub in Queensland to compete. Interesting stuff. And also on to some cycling. So the Giro d'Italia is happening as we speak. We just finished stage nine, but there has been a bit of controversy from the stage nine winner. So wait, let me just find. So Ruben Giro took out the win for the stage nine win of the Giro d'Italia, but another cyclist has slammed him for unfair riding so there was a breakout group of eight cyclists during the race but Larry Wabasi said that the winner did not share the lead now in cycling if you have watched any of the Tour de France or any cycling race there seems to be a bit of an unwritten rule that each cyclist should ha- show a bit of etiquette and take the lead in the drafting because they do use slipstreams to take advantage of speed and keeping up with certain riders. So what are your thoughts on this? So Jura has come back and said that he was only thinking about winning. However, do you think he should have shown the correct etiquette, as they all say, or just purely stuck to his goal of winning? Well, if he'd been just standing at the back of the pack waiting for a like an opportune moment to break away free from the rest of the eight riders. I think it's a bit unfair and unsporting, seeing as though it was their first uh, climb because Stage 9 took part took place in the Apennine Mountains and this would have been like a Category 1 ascent. So, yeah, I think everyone does their part. They're, they're out there to work together, maybe not um, as a team but as individuals for the main goal to get there before anyone else, right? So you'd, you'd think common sense prevails and let's all work together. And then at a moment, someone will break away. But let's ma- let's uh, what do you call it? Like make the most of our advantage in the race. Yes, definitely. I mean, a lot of the other cyclists are saying that he saved his legs for the last sprint, which is tactically a very smart move, but ethically and sporting sportsmanship wise. Is that the correct way to go about a race? But I think that yeah, you've got you will have some riders who will definitely take advantage of using the slipstreams and not following this etiquette. That's I mean, obviously it's not a concrete rule in cycling that you have to take the lead, but I think when you've got a group who are all sharing lead and you're that one person at the back, you definitely need to take your lead, and then it can be a fair race. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. That's yeah, quite succinct. Um, there's Jao Almeida from the Quick Step team. 
he still has the Malia Rosa. Is that correct, Kendra? Yeah. Yeah. So with um with twelve stages left in the Giro d'Italia, do you think that Almeida can hold hold on to the the pink jersey, the Malia Rosa? Look, I don't really know whether I who's going to win at this point in the race. I mean, they are only at stage nine and, you know, the race does go for about 23-odd days, 23, 21 days. But, um, yeah, I think that they've definitely still got a lot to go. So it will be interesting to see how some of these other riders, especially if they're coming into more mountainous terrain, I think there will definitely be a few other riders that could be contenders. So at this stage, I don't think I can really put my money on a certain cyclist to win the race at this stage, but maybe in a couple more stages we'll definitely see who's the most consistent rider who's been winning and then see if he's hold, still holding on to the pink jersey. All right. Uh, so on to um, Formula One news now. Uh, over the weekend, the F1 travelled back to the Nürburgring for the Eiffel Grand Prix, Eiffel being the Eiffel Mountains that surround the German racetrack there. Uh and it didn't go off with the bang. So Friday's session was called out due to uh, rain and fog, and the emergency helicopter could not take flight to the nearest hospital in case of uh, a serious injury to any of the drivers. So it halted free uh, practice one and two. And Mick Schumacher, son of Michael Schumacher, and Callum Eilat, the two leading uh, F2 drivers, couldn't uh, take part in the FP1 sessions. So that was all done. But on Saturday, it was a much cleaner day of uh, qualifying. Lance Stroll, unfortunately, was feeling unwell and he couldn't take part, which meant that Nico Hulkenberg, fan favorite of the F1 community, returned to take uh, his seat for Racing Point. Um, Qualified last, but did well to be only a few tenths off making it into the next qualifying session. And uh, yeah, on pole for that, for the race, we've been. Uh, Valtteri Bottas for Mercedes. Um, it was his third pole of the season. And, yeah, it was uh, quite an interesting session, I think. Uh, no one really thought Bottas could do it. Everyone's been doubting him for most of his career at Mercedes, saying that he's a second second hand to uh, to Lewis Hamilton. But into, into the race on Sunday, um, it was all carnage into the first corner. Uh, Hamilton kind of driving Bottas wide and then Bottas coming back into the track to uh, take the lead. Unfortunately for Bottas, though, he uh, locked up into turn one uh, in the first half of the race and uh, relinquished his lead to Hamilton. And after his first pit stop, he suffered a MGUH uh, problem with his engine and had to retire. So that means he lost ground in the championship. Um, it was quite an easy day for Lewis, apart from a safety car incident, which backed everyone else in the traffic. But still, it was uh, he won his 91st victory, equaling Michael Schumacher's record for most wins. And after the race, Mick Schumacher um, handed over to Lewis um, Michael Schumacher's famed red helmet. So uh, as a sign of respect and equaling the record. And that was a nice touch for F1 fans to see. Uh, more importantly there, more, more, equally importantly, Daniel Ricciardo, Kendra. Daniel Ricciardo, 
Back on the podium. How about that? Back on the podium. That's good to see for the Renault car. Yeah, it was um, it's Renault's first podium since Malaysia 2011, and Ricardo's first podium since he won in back in Monaco 2018 with Red Bull. And uh, if you might not know, but Daniel Ricardo had had a wager with uh, Cyril Abitbull, the chief crew chief of Renault, saying if he had gotten a podium at his time at Renault, then Abitbull will have to get a tattoo of Ricardo's liking. Ooh, tough, huh? So now, a... so now he has to get any tattoo like a like a German twist, let's say, on the Ricardo tattoo. I mean, it's definitely good to see Ricardo back on the podium. He was hanging around the fifth and seventh mark for quite a lot of these Grand Prix. So, yeah, it's definitely really good to see him come back up there really well. Also for the Renault car as well, you know, up against the Mercedes cars. It's done very well. Yeah, it's great to see um, a different manufacturer get onto the podium, apart from seeing just Mercedes and Red Bulls this year. Uh, he was so ecstatic. He, um, he high-fived every member of the team. And... To his, uh, <laughs> to his dismay, he forgot to do his uh, customary shoey on the podium. Oh. So, like, an, a journalist asked him after the race, oh, why didn't you do a shoey? And he was like, oh, no, I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe he's, like, too old for that stuff. I don't know. But oh, but are you ever too old to do a shoey? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> um, but, yeah, for the championship, it's looking like it's Lewis Hamilton's to lose. Um the next race will be held in Portugal at a track that I think none of the ride drivers have uh, driven at in recent years. Portimao in Algarve. Uh, but still, um, yeah, it's it's definitely Hamilton's to lose in my opinion. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, that's it for us at the sports desk this, uh, this Wednesday morning. Kendra, it's uh, been a pleasure. Yep, it's definitely been a full-packed episode. We'll definitely bring um, some news from the preliminary finals, which will be very interesting, With the especially the Richmond versus Port Adelaide. I think we can fairly say either Luca will be happy next week or I'll be happy. We'll wait and see who it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, may the best team win. You can also catch up on our socials, the Sports Desk Sin on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to listen back to any previous episodes, just head over to omni.org.au, um, the Sports Desk Synth, uh, where you can see all the podcast episodes from Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We've been Kendra and Luca. Uh, keep it tuned in to Sin this Wednesday morning. See ya. Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land on which the Sin HQ and studios stand, the Wawandri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country.